Welcome to a special preview of just some of the auditory delights we've got coming up for you in the new series of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. I'm Dr Velvet. And I'm Blackout. And we're back once again, like the retrograde masters, to talk about old telly. Yes, it's the return of our casual cultural critique of vintage TV, where Britain's favourite battle axe is never far from our minds, because here, all roads still, and I can't quite believe it either, still lead to the mountain. That's right. We'll be weaving a precarious path to Peggy through televisual history week by week, casting our nitpicking eye over some of the small screen smashes of years past. About half of these will be from the children's TV schedule. And the rest will be from the grown-ups. Mine, this sounds like thirsty work. Or fear not, we shall be lugging the drinks trolley along with us. To celebrate the good programmes. Yes, and to commiserate the bad. So there'll be at least some rubbish telly and definitely some drink. That sounds like a recipe for a smattering of bad language. You bet your f***ing ass it does. So what, and this is what the listener wants to know by now, I think, what form exactly will this drunken profane analysis take? Well, it'll sound a little something like this. series of stop-motion animated shorts based on Tove Janssen's books, narrated by British veteran actor Richard Murdoch. Produced in Poland by Semaphore and Jupiter Film, it was picked up to run on BBC One's Children's Strand from January 1983. We've watched the very first episode, Spring in Moomin Valley, in which our hero, Moomin Troll, gets out of bed. Hang on. <laughs> Get up. Sorry, I'm allergic to shit cartoons. <laughs> I tell you what I do like about this. I want to hear the narrator Richard Murdoch doing mm. a rap battle with Alec Guinness. I'm with you all the way on that. It'll be mint. What a voice! It's almost as good as the theme tune because I'm telling you now, I'm not a fan of the cartoon, but I think the theme tune is sublime. Do you have any backstory with the Moomins in general, though? Uh, none. I remember being a kid and. I was watching CITV and then this thing came on. Right. And I did see this episode. I did see it from episode one. I'm sure it was Tommy Boyd who was rattling on about it in his little spaceship, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was then the background for the, 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 the links. And, uh, yeah, I thought, well, what's this going to be? Theme tune came on and I thought, this is great. Cue visuals. The what now? <laughs> I, d- I don't want to see a goggly-eyed hippo walking through the woods. Why do I want to see that? Because they're, they're hippopotami, hippopotami, aren't they? Aren't they? Is that what a moomin is? No, he's he's just a moomin. It's its own thing. We'll get Nonsense. into it, but I think they're like a they're kind of like a mythical being along with everything else that's in the forest where they live. Oh, okay. See, I was okay. never really I I never watched any of this. I knew what it was. Mm. It's the weird thing when I was in school. It's not that I ever thought moomins was for girls. But the only people I knew that were vaguely interested in it were girls. So my brain was like I agree with, doing the yeah. other half of that equation, you know? Um, yeah, to be fair, if I cast my mind back, yes, it was always girls that were fans of the Moomins. You know, um, not that it was necessarily pink and fluffy or whatever. It's surprisingly dark, no. as we'll go on to talk about. Well, I don't it, it know actually why, is. I always got the impression that Moomins would be slimy and wet in real life. Like they were covered in some greasy film and smelling of turned milk. The animation style reminds me, it's it's a, a kick in the arse away 
from the Judderman commercials. It yes. reminds me yes. of that. There's a taste of that. It's also got that kind of Scandinavian darkness to it, yes. It has, absolutely. Which, which to be fair, yeah, okay. I, 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 I embrace that. I like that. Richard Murdoch, what a man. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story here, right? Mm-hmm. So, I cast your mind back to when, you know, a few of us were lucky enough to have portable TVs in our bedrooms in the 80s. Right. And if you didn't have uh, a built-in aerial that plugged into the back of the TV, going to your main aerial on the roof, mm-hmm. you had to use the little aerial that was attached to the TV, and you had to rely on God and good nature. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Right. So, ITV was quite good. But now and again, I'd get a little bit of interference. I was watching the Moomins one time when I was doing my homework in my bedroom, TV on, and there was a silhouette partially formed while the Moomins was playing of a man, of a figure, and I thought, have they made a boob here? Am I getting an image of Richard Murdoch? It turns out my TV was badly tuned because I... I, I do remember switching over to the other side, and it was Mike Neville hosting the news on the other side, right. and it was just the the, the cross interference. <laughs> but for for a split second, I actually believed that they'd made some kind of error. Anyway, I didn't like the movements. Nah. <laughs> so Moomin Troll gets up out of bed. It's the narration says we- he's been asleep for a hundred days. Right, that's over three months. Um, I'll stop you there. A hundred days and a hundred nights, and I bet that bed is caked in shit. <laughs> well, he he's white, so he looks quite clean when he gets up, unless his shit is also white. The bed is packed with shit. He's very sprightly and articulate the minute he wakes up, isn't he? Uh-huh. Upon my tail, he said. Stuffkin has woken up before me. Where is he? Mind, I bet Moomin Troll is a fucking prick when you're nursing a hangover in the kitchen. Absolutely. And also, Snuffkin... What a creepy-ass wipey bloke he is, mind. Well, yes. Creepy, creepy, creepy. But, but, alluring. I think he's got that Pied Piper thing going on. I hated Sniff. I hated Sniff because, to me, he had a really malicious side. This rat. I hated Sniff. Because uh-huh. in, late, in later episodes, in late, I do remember, if ever something w- went wrong, it was always down to Sniff. Well, this is the thing, mind. This programme is called The Moomins, plural. And so mm-hmm, far... Yeah. There's one Moomin, a Scarecrow, and a rat. It feels like I've been right. missold something here. There should be a hotline I can call. Come down, shouted Snufkin. We're going to celebrate waking up. They're going to make a pile of stones to show that they were the first ones there in the spring. This lot know how to party, don't they? Some days, you've got to hang over that bad. You do feel like celebrating for the fact that you've actually managed to wake up. So <laughs> this I get, is true. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But... Hugging around massive stones on top of a mountain ain't my idea. Not just that. There's not a pick of a bit of fruit juice or a, a or a cornflake or not a one. They leave that house without a pick of breakfast. I don't believe in that. That's a bad example to kids, that. They're all hungover. I think they stopped at McDonald's on the way. About, well, well, I'd hope so, because it's not good for you. The higher up the hill they went, the less people there were. Fewer, Richard. There were fewer people. I know this isn't meant to be an educational programme per se, but there's a standard to uphold here. There were fewer people. Jesus. Well, you can't knock it, because this is a Scandinavian uh, uh, tale, etc., and it's £10 a pint over there. That's very true, yeah. It's £10 a pint! Telling you now, I got a postcard from Ozzy Bognops. It's £10 a pint. He's absolutely livid, the man! I'm amazed they could afford to get as hammered as they did. So they get up to the mountaintop, or whatever... And they find a, they do. a massive abandoned top hat. I think that this is a Victorian crime scene they've stumbled across. 
In the next yes. episode, they're going to uncover the body of three dead hookers and a chimney sweep with no limbs. I mean, fair play, there's less of him. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, and not just that. Uh, they remove from the crime scene. They nick the hat. Yes, yes, they do, yes. It's big enough to put a rat in, so, you know, that could be like useful if they want to throw it in the river. With, with the line... Let's go home. I'm dying for some breakfast. One, eat before you leave. Uh-huh. Two, clean your, your defecated bedroom. <laughs> Three, stop nicking folks' stuff. Uh, yeah, the There's sim- your life lessons. But it's the fact that it's like a silk top hat. This must be the best-dressed hobgoblin I've ever seen. We find out that it's like a hobgoblin's hat they've stolen. They didn't know that this would cast a spell on the Valley of the Moomins. This might be the most threatening end to a children's programme I have ever heard. By the middle of the next episode, Moomin Troll is going to look like Carrie on prom night. (laughs) Although in the interest of balance, the other half of the show will be more like this. and I was a Yorkshire television half-hour sitcom written by our old favourites Pam Valentine and Michael Ashton, which ran for two series and 15 episodes. First airing in January 1987, this is the spiritual successor to That's My Boy and ports over series lead Molly Sugden, starring here with a real-life husband, William Moore, as they respectively play the head of HR and chief commissioner at an advertising firm. Comedic support comes in the form of John Horsley and Deddy Davies. I just love that Sidney Lumsden is having an affair with Ida Willis. Yes. I love this. Yes. Pam Valentine and Mike Ashton have created a, a sitcom universe. They have. We thought it ended with That's My Boy and You're Only Young Twice. No. No, 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 no. On it goes. It's an extended universe. This is this is bigger than Marvel, this. Speaking of which, I see that our opening titles are back to the That's My Boy mould of glue some photos onto some card, crossfade between yeah. them, and there, that's 26 seconds of your show done already. He's lying there having eaten half a kilogram of MDMA, <laughs> and he's, he's wondering, what what has become of my life? We, yeah, we've yeah, got yeah. work to do before we get to that. We open on an office scene. Uh, my first reaction is these are the kind of sitcom sets you want to get on ITV. I don't mean that as a compliment. Totally agree. Totally agree. What kind of windows are they in the office? Are they in a bomb shelter? <laughs> I think so, yes. I did like that set of dummy files that she's got on the shelves where there's like three of them together and you open it and there's a bottle of sherry inside. I'm so happy to see Deddy Davies back in this. She was in That's My Boy. She played Miss Parfit. Mm-hmm. Um... And she's been in several things. I've seen her in... She was in an episode of You Rang My Lord. And she plays a much much different character in this. She's not the downtrodden... No, no, absolutely. She's definitely enjoying herself. It's definitely feels like she's never going to get out of that trap of being second fiddle here. But yeah, she's given it a roll. I admire that. Yeah, she's not She's not leading lady material. Um, true, and true. I, and I, I, I imagine she knew that, but mm. you know, people are cast and they fit into that sort of segment. But every every part she plays, she gives it her all, and she's good at it. Brilliant character actress. I love Deddy Davies, me mint. It's just the, the problem I have with it is, fuck all happens. Yeah, in thirty minutes, fuck all happens. The whole thing feels very stagey. That's not a bad thing, but I'm not sure it's pulling it off as well as ITV would have liked. Even compared to the first episode of That's My Boy, the laughs aren't coming as thick and fast. You've said it yourself, that's because the script isn't as good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, bottom line, it's 
not as good. So there we go. True enough. But by this point, I would have expected Mike and Pam to be able to write for Molly to give a, a nuclear explosion of, a, of an intro for a, so for a pilot I. episode even. If anything, that's why it's disappointing, because you know it should be better. Absolutely, yes. I don't believe for a second that a couple as well-to-do as Nora and George Powers would have bottles of spirits just out on the mantelpiece instead of in a drinks cabinet. She'd not stand for that. Yeah. No, do you know what? The reason they're out there is because they're used so frequently. <laughs> he, her husband's meant to be lazy and retired, not a chronic alcoholic. Yeah, no, true, but but because she does love a gin and tonic when she comes in, he's sitting there, he'll go over to put them in the drinks cabinet and she'll say, why are you putting them in there? <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a waste of time that is. I'm going to use it in a minute. Language, Molly. No, not anymore. Not anymore, William. <laughs> I like that Molly Sugden cannot keep away from her Yorkshire accent and William Moore can't stay anywhere near his. I don't know why people thought in the 80s that the minute you put on a pair of orange headphones, you were just oblivious to the world around you. I remember back in the day when they were first released. Oh, they're a danger. You'll get run over wearing them, listening to the pop rock music uh-huh. punk. As you walk down the street, you won't hear the traffic. Mind. They were. They weren't. They were not uh, noise cancellation in the slightest. Exactly. There was an ITV sitcom in 1956 called My Husband and I. It starred Evelyn Lane and Frank Lawton as themselves, who were married in real life. Which, of course, Molly Sugden and William are here. They only made seven episodes of this 1956 one. They were wiped. Mm. Not that much information exists about it other than it being a standard domestic sitcom. That's got to have been an inspiration for this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, by judging from the first episode, the same scripts. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I hate to say it, but it feels like by this point, Ashton and Valentine were more in love with the situation than they were the comedy. Yeah. The incidental script, anything here which isn't driving the plot, is absolute filler. It just dodders along, relies on the performance and the rhythm of the cast rather than having any actual jokes. And that's with plenty of story set up going on in the first episode. It's It's still dragging its feet. William Moore becomes the hottest thing since Chan and Tatum dancing in the sailor suit... I can sort of understand that. Well, well, right. Um, I love. I I like that little twist, though. I like that little twist. He's he's got the. He turns down the accountant job, and um, decides just to be the bellhop and Mm -hmm. commissioner of Mm -hmm. uh, of the of the building. See, that's the thing. You don't even. You don't even hear the word commissioner anymore. They don't even have them. They just have like head of security down at the front. Chief commissioner. That's what you want. We've lost something on the way, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We have a commissioner at Mount Peg Towers. We still call him a commissioner. What's what's wrong with the rest of the world? Well, exactly. I think sometimes, though, the spirit of a show just can't help breaking through. We are talking rubbish here, aren't we? Yeah, I think the only spirit that's left in this show is in the bottles of gin that's on her mantelpiece. The dregs. And we know just what you're thinking. Isn't this just two middle-aged white men clinging desperately to an illusion of youth and relevance by hosting a self-indulgent vanity podcast to facilitate meandering chat about heavily marketed fads they've already fallen for once and interwoven with faux nostalgia? No, sometimes there's three of us. (laughs) 
Science Workshop was an educational programme from BBC Schools made from 1981 to 83, presented by David Hargreaves, Lillian Evans and Malcolm McPhee. It spent each episode having a good old rummage around a single subject with emphasis on practical explanation and demonstration. We've watched the Stretch, Weigh and Bounce episode, which is about elastic, springs and a figure of authority inspecting your worth with a hammer in his hand. Indeed. Can I just bring up, before we start anything, the theme tune? Uh, th- th- this is exactly what my first question. I was going to say, Bognops, you have dabbled now and again with a harmonica. Indeed. Can I have your thoughts on this theme tune, please? I have two thoughts. The first one is that it sounds like a soundtrack to a dream I had after too much brie one night. Right. <laughs> right. And to give it a practical assessment, it's a bit like musical winnets with a bad stomach in the background. So you agree it's mint? Absolutely. It's just welcome to the science. It is It is like the band Yes after <laughs> after seven buckets of Ket, isn't it? <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, it's just warm and welcoming. You know, I loved this as a kid. BBC schools giving engaging information backed up with musical winnets and a bad stomach. It's great. Yeah, right. It really is. And, and we've, we begin the show with um, David Hargreaves confessing, rather embarrassed, about the fact that he's never been on a trampoline. Indeed. He has, however, had the rollers in. He stood there like Michael Landon with a golf club membership. (laughs) (laughs) Bubble perm, bubble perm. And he shows on the wonderful uh, Venetian blind wall with colour separation overlay an expert in using the bounce. Yeah, go on, Dave. Go on, man. Um, a woman, a young girl who appears on the trampoline. You know what? This entire section, I haven't got anything written down about it because it won't make the final edit. David Hargreaves. Who, 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 by the way, was in Juliet Bravo. He was Gene Dowler's yeah. husband. Indeed he was, yeah. He's got to be the most dour presenter for a children's TV show ever. Oh, you said I dour. Think... I would say avuncular. Well, see, he's, he's, a budget, he's a budget Tom Baker. Well, you see, I think that Hargreaves is supposed to come over as a sort of gruff but affable father figure. Yes, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I kept expecting him to go into a ramble about how she won't let him see the kids anymore and to tap me for 30 <laughs> pence so he can get another scotch before he goes back to his bed set. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 completely, I completely get that. But clearly, any uh, uh, impression or attempt at picking up talent in this uh, studio was overshadowed by Malcolm, the man with the most lustrous hair and impressive sideburns I've ever seen in school's television. Yep. Um, Yep. And I'd love to see that hair bouncing up and down in slow motion, mind. Well, what worried me was that the the poor man's eight stone ten. Aye. I was thinking thinking that. He stood on some, like, scales at the start. Eight stone ten, and I'm like, right, what is your other foot on the floor? What? Yes, yes. I, I was that when I was nine. Malcolm? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, Good what's God. going on here? What, what has Malcolm got rickets? <laughs> the science workshop camera team goes to a scales factory in Bilston. I love yep. this. I absolutely I? love this. Also, just that just that phrase, the Science Workshop camera team. Yeah. I'm picturing like a SWAT squad here. Science Workshop camera team went to a factory in West Bromwich to see how they make sure of this. I'm guessing it's the BBC and they can't advertise the factory by name in it. 
but I'm enjoying the implication that the location in West Bromwich is somehow crucial to the work they carry out. This couldn't be done anywhere, anywhere else. You can say what you like. I mean, the, not only does the needle appear to be slightly kinked, but I was just in awe of the testers lemon shirt and brill cream combo. Absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. We get a beautiful tour of a place where they make scales. I'll tell you now, all this is telling me is that life after school in industry is utter pig shit and misery. Indeed. Unless you live in Kensington. Right. I'm, I'm loving the thought that every set of salter scales in the world is hand calibrated for hours on end by one man in a factory in West Bromwich, which is why going into a BHS kitchenwares department in the 1980s was more expensive than buying a house. Speak, well, speaking of the power, the man with the power is our special guest, Alan White, from the Trading Standards oh. Office. Indeed. Oh, hang on a second. You mean Christopher Lee with a clipboard? Exactly. <laughs> hey, mind, nice suit, and I bet he drives a grey Vauxhall Chevette. The man was the inspiration for Miami Vice. Alan White is precisely the face of bland conformity which thrived in the 1970s and 80s. He's as boring as hell, and what's more, he's absolutely delighted about that. Indeed. Yes, he is. I'll tell you what that man is to me. He's a fucking legend. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that man is amazing. Civil um, servant, trade unionist, everything. Alan White, he goes around all the shops in the United Kingdom yep. looking Ever. for scales. <laughs> With a hammer. He just, he just, he just goes With in, a hammer. sniffing, sniffing. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, you've got scales in here. Well, we've got, I've got, I've, you've got some pick and mix behind the counter. I know you've got some scales, mind. If your scales are good enough for Alan White, sorry, for Alan White, yep. he'll belt the crown plate with a hammer. If well, they're not yeah. good enough, he'll turn on you. I have to say, mind, when Alan is weighing weights in the studio with uh, David Hargreaves, yeah. Hargreaves is acting his cock off to look interested here, mind. <laughs> I know, but it's like, you've asked him in. Come on, yeah. man, do your job. The, the producer's asked him in. Yeah. Hargreaves hasn't. Hargreaves is bored mindless. If Hargreaves didn't want to do that, he's just given it to, uh, to Malcolm. That's fine. Yeah, and Alan well, White was on that. Panorama that night. That's probably what it was. But if you notice, <laughs> all of the other weights they use are shithouse black, and his are polished brass. Mm-hmm. There yes, yes. is a civil servant. He's yep. probably yes. got a, a case with velvet inserts for those weights and also yep. a, an indentation for a hammer, two punches, and, and a box of elastoplast. Yeah, yep. he, he goes into, um, like, an apothecary or whatever, and he's like, I'm here to inspect your scales. And they're like, oh, we've got some weights here. And he just opens his briefcase, his doctor's bag, he pulls them out and he goes, my weights are brass, you can kiss my ass." And he plunks him down on the scales. <laughs> Speaking of revelations, by the way, we also get to know that um, David Hargreaves is 13 Clem. Uh-huh. He's well, 13 Clem, the man. I, I suspect he's slightly more than that, but again, he's got one foot on the floor. But yes. Yeah. Now, let's just talk about the yoghurt pot scales. Yes. They go to Oak Hill Junior School to make a flux capacitor out of yoghurt pots. Correct. And the green pattern pullover on one of the budding scientists was making me start to hallucinate. I could see shapes from the future in it. it, it, it do you know what it reminded me of? When you shut your eyes really tight. They can't get the kids to, like, use a ruler and divide numbers to make, like, the measurement markings. They're like, no, 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 fold it, just like the man at the salter factory doesn't. <laughs> the, the intricate design 
that went into uh, the design process, all of the plans, all of the files, everything that went into making this this yogurt pot scale. Mm-hmm. In the BBC production office, it's in a, all of the papers and all of the, the workings out and everything. It's filed mm-hmm. in a drawer. And do you know what that drawer's marked with? Go on. The word <laughs> Well, that sounds absolutely hellish. That's right. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be telling all of my friends to download the new series of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour. And what's the name of the internet site where that's available from? Well, you can switch on your modem and dial into PeggyMountPod.com or just set up what they call a subscription at the iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Podcasts, Mixcloud, Stitcher or Amazon Music outlets in your nearest shopping precinct. Mind that sounds dear. I don't know if I can afford the whole series. You don't have to worry about that. It's all absolutely free. Free? As the wind. Producer Ken's got wind. And we're all paying for that, yes. But you, dear listener, you don't have to sit in the studio praying for a window that opens. That's right. You can describe for free and listen from the comfort of wherever it is that you and your internet-enabled device happen to be. And if that's not quite in comfort, perhaps our podcast will help. It'll certainly take your mind off it. There's a tagline for us. A distraction from the discomfort of the 21st century. With drink. And language. So there we go. The new series of the Peggy Bound Calamity Hour is landing soon with your nearest podcast provider. Subscribe now. Don't miss an episode. Be telt. He means please. I mean be telt. (laughs) 